Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity to be together as a family as we settle in to remind ourselves of the good news of what Jesus has done for us in these moments. Would you press home to each one in this building the significance of your great grace in giving us your own son. Thank you for these moments. Thank you for the symbols that we're about to look at and take into our bodies as a vivid and powerful reminder of the gospel. Would you help us all to be refreshed and renewed as we look at the cross once again, remind ourselves of our great Savior and what he's done for us. Help us to remember well in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what the Apostle Paul said, reminding the Corinthian Christians and bringing that reminder over to us today about why we do this and what we're actually doing when we take this little cracker, this little cup of juice into our bodies. We're making a proclamation to uh, steal Pastor Ken's sermon title from this morning. We are engaging in a little bit of show and tell. Uh, As we do this, we are showing each other a picture and these little emblems, these little elements of what Jesus did. It's a way of, again, refreshing our memory, not just with words, but there is the telling part. If we just sat here in silence and we just picked this little cracker up and put it in our mouths and then drank this little cup of juice and said nothing more and moved on we will not have proclaimed the gospel. We would have painted a picture, but that picture needs to be explained. It needs to be interpreted. It needs to be given the words that Jesus gave to us to explain the significance of this moment. For any outsider who might be watching or who might be sitting among us even and watching us put a cracker in our mouth and drinking juice... There's no context for that. What are we doing, having a snack in the middle of church? In a certain sense, yes, this doesn't satisfy our hunger. This is not lunchtime or pre-lunchtime. This is a symbolic action, but it has deep and significant meaning to us. Jesus sat down with his disciples at a full meal, a Passover meal, a holiday feast. Think of your best Thanksgiving and then multiply its significance. As the Jewish people, and these disciples in particular, sat down with Jesus the night before he died, ate a meal together that included bread, included wine, and also included a roasted lamb on the table. But Jesus doesn't mention the lamb to his disciples on that night. Every year before that, they would have talked about the lamb. They would have talked about how it had been sacrificed All those years ago, you can read about it in the book of Exodus. They would have read about it in the book of Exodus. But he doesn't talk about the lamb on this night because he is the lamb. 
He's sitting at the head of the table instead of being feasted on as the main course. Instead, he focuses our attention on bread and wine. And he commands his disciples. And that command carries over to us that we're supposed to do this. We'll do what? We'll eat and drink in remembrance of him. About To remember specifically what he was about to do within hours of this meal. So I take you back to Luke's gospel. The night that this was happening. This Passover evening where they were celebrating this Passover meal together. He takes bread and he gives thanks to God for it. He breaks the bread, spreads it around the table to his disciples. They eat it and he says to them, this little piece of bread that you've broken off is my body, which is given. It's a gift for you. Do this, take it in your mouth, eat it in remembrance of me. And so by doing that now, today, we are taking into our body, our own physical body, a reminder of Jesus's real physical human body and how he gave himself for us. So would you take this with me? And as you chew, and as you swallow, you are expressing your faith. That's what this is for. Eating something, taking something into your body is symbolic of believing something. Believing that Jesus gave his life for you to pay for your sins. The other part is important as well. This cup here of reddish liquid reminds us of Jesus' blood specifically. His life was given. That means he bled. That means he stopped breathing. That means his heart stopped pumping. He died. He was human. He was a man. He could die. And he did die for our sins. He died to pay the penalty for sins. And not only that, not to give us a clean slate, even better. He paid for our sins so that we might be forgiven and so that he might bring us into relationship with God, what he calls the new covenant, so that we might live with him and live for him forever. That started the moment you began to trust in Jesus. And so this regular reminder that we do in this gathered body, when we drink this cup, when we take this bread, we're just re-expressing our faith, that we believe that that moment, that event 2,000 years ago, that giving of that life, that shedding of that blood, is what defines us and shapes us and makes us new. And so we open this cup and we remember and listen to Jesus' words recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let's drink in remembrance and in anticipation. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we do give you thanks. We give you thanks for this symbol. 
We give you thanks for this moment that we can celebrate this family meal together as brothers and sisters brought into relationship with you through the death of your son. You have made us sons of God. You have adopted us into your family, and we celebrate that. We remember that with great joy and with deep gratitude. You have extended forgiveness to us who do not deserve it. Thank you. Thank you for paying the ultimate price. Thank you for being willing to come to us to save us. We commit the rest of our time to you this morning and we ask that you would speak to us and give us ears to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Today, we're going to be back in Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, but I'm going to invite you uh, with me today on a uh, short little group therapy session. So, when I was in the third grade, and this is crazy that I remember this, but it's one of those memories that's burned into my mind. When I was in the third grade, we had a project in school. The project was, is that we were supposed to research something something that we could demonstrate for the class and that we could tell the class how to make something and then follow it up by showing them, by actually making what we said, what we told them how to make. Now, at that age, uh, one of the things I was just learning how to do was to make paper airplanes. Now, many of you probably knew how to make a paper airplane long before uh, third grade, but for me, for whatever reason, I hadn't really... um, made many paper airplanes. So I studied how to make a paper airplane. Uh, I, I looked at different resources to show me how to make the best airplane that would fly the furthest. And I wrote out my report and I presented it to my, my class. I presented the report. I told them step by step what you needed to do to build an airplane, a paper airplane. And uh, after I was done explaining to them how to make the paper airplane and uh, I think, and it's hard, my memory's a little, but I'm going to say I did a wonderful job. So, uh, so I explained how to make a paper airplane, and then it came time to show the class what I just told them how to do. And so I took out a piece of paper, and I don't know what happened, but my mind went blank. I, I had studied, I had known, and I started folding this piece of paper, and it was the worst looking, most horrible, I don't even know if you could call it an airplane. It was like I don't, it was just a folded piece of paper, basically, by the time I was done with it. I tried to throw it. It didn't really fly. Mean, meanwhile, and this, was, this is telling you a little bit of my story. This is where the group therapy comes in. Meanwhile, as I'm trying and fumbling to make my paper airplane, the kids in the class start laughing. Now, why the teacher didn't stop it to this day, I won't understand that. If you're a teacher, don't let kids laugh at other kids. But anyway, so I'm feeling pretty upset Kids are laughing at me, but then it gets worse because then three or four of my classmates yell out my name. And I look up, and all of them had built a paper airplane and threw them at me. Now, I won't tell you what I did after that because that's not a good part of the story. You guys remember that I told you when I was younger I was a fighter. Well, let's just say this was still during my fighting days. Uh, And uh, those kids, well, they weren't so happy that they did that, but neither was I as I sat in detention for a week. But anyway... This is the, uh, that's the story I need to share 
and I know that's weird to start with a, a weird story like that, but today, as Justin has already mentioned, the title of the sermon is Show and Tell. And here's the idea that I want to get across, and what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 8 is Jesus is going to be doing something that is very important for us to understand, uh, and that is that he has been now, for several chapters of the book of Matthew, uh, he has been going through the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Kingdom Life Discourse, and he's been teaching his followers, telling his followers how to live the Kingdom Life. He's been telling them what the new kingdom looks like, how the new kingdom is going to, uh, to work, and how it looks for those who are part of the new kingdom. Then we enter into Matthew chapter 8, and immediately following his teaching, the way that Matthew describes it, even though we know that not all of Matthew is necessarily chronological, Matthew has a very specific purpose to jump into giving us three stories today of how Jesus healed people in different ways. Actually, four stories, technically. Three specific stories and then an overall picture of what Jesus is doing. And, and what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to not just teach, he's not just going to speak, but he's going to show. He's going to do the whole show and tell thing. He's already told, and now it's time for him to show the people who are watching that what he was teaching wasn't just some guy up on a mountain making things up, but he indeed had the power and authority, and that's going to be the key word today, the power and authority to, to not only teach on the kingdom, but to show what the new kingdom is going to look like. There's going to be several different pieces that are going to come together today as we look at that. And although I've gotten a little ahead of myself, let's just quickly do a little review. Book of Matthew, remember, the theme of Matthew is Jesus brings the heavenly kingdom to earth. That's what we've been looking at from chapter 1 all the way through where we're at, that Jesus is the one who brings the new kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, to earth. As the Messiah, the rightful king, he brings the good and right and perfect kingdom of God, the heavenly kingdom. And that's what Jesus brings. And then, most recently, we've been looking at that Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus has been teaching his disciples, his followers, actually those who are there to listen to him, he's been teaching them many things about what it looks like to live in the new kingdom, what the new kingdom looks like, how to live in that new kingdom. And, and we see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what, the way Matthew ends it at least, in verse 28, going back to what we, we already looked at this last week, but I want to remind you of where we left off in chapter 7. We see in verse 28 of chapter 7, it says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So as we ended chapter 7, and as we ender, ended the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that Jesus, all that he was teaching, he was teaching with authority. So Jesus has been teaching. He taught with authority about life in the heavenly kingdom. The people realized that the way he spoke was a way of authority, that there was something better and bigger and more important about his words than any other teacher. And we know that because he is God himself, the Messiah, teaching them. And that authority, as he teaches, now he's going to not only speak with authority, but now we're going to move into chapter 8, and we're going to see that Jesus now shows his authority through miraculous healings. Jesus shows his authority. So he's already spoke with authority. The people recognize that the way he speaks is authoritative, but now he's going to take his authority and he's going to prove it in a physical, tangible way for people to see. 
It's important to remember, and I'll probably say this later on, but I want to make sure it's said before I forget to say it, that when in Jesus' ministry, the primary goal of Jesus is not just to go around healing people. He's not just like a magician or someone who can go around and heal people for the sake of healing people. The whole point of Jesus' ministry was to teach the gospel, to preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom that is coming through the Messiah. And yes, miracles would come along, but those miracles were to confirm the message. These don't just stand alone. Like The reason that Jesus teaches is to bring salvation to people, and the, the healings and the miracles that he does are an object lesson to show that what he's saying indeed is true. We can't miss that because it can be very easy and some people have looked at Jesus and thought, well, he's just a miracle worker. He did something miraculous. Maybe some people believe it was fake. Some people might believe it was real. But either way, Jesus was way more than a miracle worker. Yes, he did miracles and he does miracles, but the miracle that is the greatest miracle is salvation from sin. And that's what he preached about. So really, the most miraculous thing that we see happening is Jesus' teaching and the words that he shares, because those are the ones that bring eternal life. So let's keep that in mind, even as we look at these healings today. But it is important to know that Jesus does show his authority. He shows his power. He shows that what he's been teaching is not just a bunch of words, but he's going to put it into action. And we see that through four different patients, as I call them today. Four different patients that need to be healed But before we get to all of those, let's go ahead and just read the whole passage together. We're in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And by the way, I just want to say real quickly, I know not all the verses today are going to be up on the PowerPoint, so please make sure you have your Bibles and ready to follow along. We will be looking at different passages, but they might not show up on the screen. But for now, let's go to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come inside my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion said, and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. All right, so we're going to look at chapter 8. We're going to break this down into four separate sections, four different patients that Jesus sees. 
And the first one is an unclean outcast in verses 1 through 4. An unclean outcast. So let's explain that. Why is this an unclean outcast? Well, we see after Jesus comes down from preaching and teaching, a leper comes to him. So the diagnosis of our first patient is that he has leprosy. Leprosy in biblical times was a serious thing. Now, many times you might hear leprosy and it's talked about in a very grotesque way. And honestly, there are some forms of leprosy that really were horrid, just horrible, just horrible to have. It would cause, it would cause terrible deformation of your body simply because you couldn't feel pain. And that is a form of leprosy. But leprosy is much broader than this. And so I don't want to just isolate it to that. If you look into the book of Leviticus, and we could read uh, verse, or chapter 13 and 14 this morning, and, uh, well, it would be a lot of fun, let's put it that way. Um, but we won't be doing that. If you want to know more about leprosy, and you want to know more about how Israel handled leprosy, go to Leviticus 13 and 14 and have just a good old time. All right, so that's gonna, that, we'll talk a little bit about a few verses. But leprosy is, in, is really any kind of skin disease. It's any kind of skin disease that is an obvious skin disease that is causing, uh, that is causing what people would witness to be uh, problems with the skin. And uh, many times this might even be contagious. And so leprosy is some kind of skin disease. It could be very severe, but it's always an issue of an uncleanness. I think the point that we need to see here is not to figure out how sick this leper was. Like, did he have all his fingers? Did he have all his toes? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't really know. But what we need to focus on is that he is unclean. The Jewish law is very clear that someone who is seen to be a leper, who has some form of leprosy, no matter how severe it might be, that they would be an outcast from the people. They would be an outcast of the Jewish people. So indeed, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 13. We'll read a few verses. We're not going to look at all of it. But Leviticus 13 makes it very clear what should happen if somebody has leprosy. If someone is seen to have leprosy and the priests have decided that, yes, this is indeed leprosy, Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. 45 and 46 of Leviticus 13. says this, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, had I preached this message two or three years ago, I probably wouldn't make this analogy, but basically, this leper, for who knows how long, has been in quarantine. They have been, he has been alone outside the camp, not able to be a part of the people of God, not able to participate in the worship, not able to participate in life, but instead to be a complete outcast, to be quarantined away from his people. That would be, the, <clears throat> that would be what it would be to be a leper. And so I don't know what the severity of his disease was, but we see that, <clears throat> I'm sorry, we see that according to the Bible, he is unclean in the sense that There is a matter of purity that is not being seen in him, and therefore, he would be put out from the camp, he would be isolated, he would be on his own. And so I have to imagine, and this is just my mind, that as the leper comes to Jesus, this isn't just about physical healing, but he's feeling a whole lot more than just his physical pain. There must be mental and emotional pain that he is feeling as he comes to Jesus. And another piece of the picture here is, I I don't think he should be doing this. 
He is out and about, and he's coming to see Jesus, and we've already seen that a crowd has surrounded him. So the leper is going out of his way, in some ways, to break the law in order to get to Jesus, because he's hanging around people that he's not supposed to be around, and that's how desperate he is for healing. And so he comes to Jesus, and he asks for healing, but he has this leprosy that needs to be healed. But not only is it the leprosy, but it's also the fact that he's an outcast. From most people, if you would look at the religious leaders, they would want nothing to do with him. And part of this was because many assumed that leprosy was always a result of sin. And indeed, sometimes it most likely was. But in other times, it may not be. It might just be a disease that happened to happen to someone. But many people would immediately see leprosy and think, well, this is a sin problem. And so not only were they ostracized because of their physical sickness, but they were ostracized because many looked down on them as sinful. And Jesus now is approached by this individual, an outcast that is looked down upon, that nobody wants to have anything to do with, that nobody wants to be around. And here he comes to Jesus, and he says something so incredible. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This is such a powerful statement, and I'm just going to, quick rabbit trail, this isn't really part of the main thought of today, but the fact that this is what the leper says shows his faith, but it also shows his humility. Notice he doesn't come to Jesus demanding, Jesus, heal me. He doesn't come just asking even just a question, Jesus, can you heal me? No, he comes to him, and what he says is very, very specific. He says, if you will, I know you can. Now, is that the way that we pray? Uh, You know, I I think about that, and I think there's so many things that go on in our lives, and how do we approach God with it? Do we approach with this just very timid, like, God, can you do this? Will you maybe do this for me? Or do we come uh, with it, and and we just demand it? Like, God, you need to do this for me. You you need to do this. But no, there's this understanding that there's, there's complete faith in the ability of Jesus to heal this man. The leper knows Jesus can, but the question he has to ask is not, Jesus, can you heal me? But Jesus, will you heal me? He's asking that Jesus will be willing to clean, to purify, to heal him. And so that's a really interesting thing as we see the leper coming to him. But one thing that we do see, because Jesus is about to heal this man, is that going back to talking about the kingdom of God, Jesus is showing the Jewish people right here, right now, that he is the kingdom of God is not just for the clean. It's not just for those who are part of the inner circle, but the kingdom of God is for the lowly and the outcast, just as much as it is for anyone else. And that's what he's been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember all the things that he said about what it means to be part of the kingdom. And it's not about being a part of the elite. It's not about being powerful. It's about being lowly. It's about being humble. And yes, in this sense, in this case, we see that Jesus is reaching out to an outcast. The leper comes to him. He could have sent him away. He could have said, go back to your camp. Get away from me. Get away from us. But that's not what Jesus does. He listens and he does answer the man's questions and question, and he says, I will be clean. But let's see what the treatment that Jesus uses here, because it's actually quite interesting. The treatment that Jesus uses after the diagnosis of leprosy is Jesus' touch. Jesus' touch. Jesus touches the man. We see here that not only does he say, I will be clean, but before that, he says, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. So the word touch here can literally mean take hold of. 
Uh, I don't think this is Jesus just like putting a finger on him. All right, the magic finger. I don't think that's what's happening here. To take hold of. I, I imagine he's either grabbing him out by the shoulders, or I, I just have this picture, and I could be totally wrong, this is not biblical. I just have this picture of Jesus giving him a big bear hug. You know, just taking hold of him and just grabbing him. And, and his touch, and then he says, I will be clean as he holds him. This is a beautiful picture to me as I just think about the love and compassion of Jesus for someone who is so outcast, who, by the way, not only could not be around people, but could never be touched by anyone. We don't know how long it's been since he's been touched, uh, in a sense of from human touch. We don't know. It could have been a long, long time since he's ever even felt a human touch. And Jesus takes hold of him. Jesus shows him compassion, shows him love, and it's something that he shouldn't have done. Because Leviticus 5, chapter 3, we won't read it, but trust me and you can go back and look at it if you want. Leviticus 5, 3 says, if you touch somebody who's unclean, you become unclean. So since leprosy was something that made people unclean, if you were to ever be touched by a leper or touch a leper, then you would be considered unclean. You'd have to go through a ritual cleansing and everything else. So to touch a leper is unheard of. It's scandalous. It should never happen. And yet Jesus, he could have just healed with a word. He does later, by the way. He could have just said, sure, leprosy be healed. But no, he makes a point to touch the leper. And what we see is something amazing happen. Instead of the clean person becoming unclean, we see the exact opposite. The unclean person becomes clean. Jesus reverses everything. And he takes it and he heals as he touches the leper, even though he shouldn't have done this. So yes, the outcome then is that he was healed and made clean. He was healed and made clean. This was more than just a physical healing, but this was a cleaning that meant that he was able to rejoin the people of God. Immediately his disease was healed. Notice this is immediate. This doesn't take a long time. Uh, it, it says immediately his leprosy was cleansed. This isn't like he went home and after a couple weeks it went away. This is immediately. There's no question this is a miracle. And Jesus does this. He heals him. He heals the outcast. But then he tells him something weird. And he says, don't say anything to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. Jesus sent him to the priest to confirm his cleansing and to observe Jewish law. Because he wanted this man to go to the priest, and this is what Leviticus 13 and 14 talks about. You go to the priest, you give an offering, and you are seen as clean. And then you're able to be part of the people again. And so Jesus doesn't want him just to walk away and not go through what he needs to go through to be declared clean, because he would still have all these issues that would be a result of that. He wants him to go to the priest, do what the law requires, and give the offering and be declared clean by the priest. No doubt in this, the priest would be able to start wondering what's going on with this man who came to him that was healed of leprosy. But Jesus tells him that, and he says, don't say anything to anybody. Now, some people will say this is because he didn't really want people to know about what he was doing or about his his miracles. But remember the context. It tells us that there's a crowd of people. There's a crowd of people that watch this happen. So it's not so much that Jesus is looking for people never to know that he heals people, but I think the point here is that he wants to make sure that this leper understands uh, that what just happened is not what Jesus is all about. Like, 
just healing is not what he's about. He's not just a healer. That, I, I believe that we see this happen several times in Jesus' ministry, and it's almost always right after a miraculous healing, he says, don't tell anybody. The point here is that he doesn't want people just going around saying, hey, if you need to be healed, go to Jesus. If you need, Because he's more than a miracle worker. He's not here just to heal. He's here to bring healing that is much more lasting. And this leper apparently had listened to the sermon. The people that are around had listened to the sermon, so there was a connection to the teaching with the miracle that he does. But he doesn't want to just become a celebrity because he heals people, but he is looking for more. He wants to teach, and he wants his message to be what is heard, not just his actions. And so he says, go to the priest, be declared clean, and do it immediately. And that's the idea. Don't say anything to anyone. So he doesn't don't run around telling everybody on your way. Just go and do this. He doesn't, by the way. In other passages of the scripture, just like everyone else, they go around telling everybody, which, I mean, <laughs> come on. Uh, so, um, but this is what Jesus says. Again, showing that the kingdom is not just for the clean, but for the lowly and the outcast. He wasn't looking to become known for his works, but for his words. That's what I want us to remember. His works were simply a way of proving what he said was true. All right, let's move on to our next patient. Uh, Romans, a Roman's slave, verses 5 through 14. So we see this picture where a centurion comes to him. In, a, in another passage in one of the other Gospels, it says he sent messengers. Yes, that makes sense. But the centurion comes in some way, shape, or form to ask Jesus to do something. But let's keep in mind what a centurion would be. A centurion is a Roman captain of 100 Roman troops. So this centurion would have been a Gentile, would not have been Jewish, which is important to understand. But also, not only was he just a normal Gentile, but he's actually part of the problem in the sense that he's part of the system that is oppressing the Jews. He is part of the problem in the sense that he is, he is part of a hundred, he's over a hundred centurion, or he's under a hundred soldiers that are making sure that the Jewish people obey Rome. So he is a part of the piece of the puzzle that is keeping the Jewish people down. This is not someone that many Jews would have respected, although we do know a little bit more from him as we go to the book of Luke, and it seems like he was favorable towards the Jewish people, but it doesn't matter. The point is here, he's a Gentile who is part of the the evil people of Rome, and But then we see that the centurion comes, and yes, that's who he is, and then he asked Jesus to do something, and he asked Jesus to heal his slave or his servant, his young servant, his young slave. He wants Jesus to heal him. Obviously, this man understands who Jesus is, knows what Jesus can do, and sees that there is a need that can only be fulfilled by Jesus. He didn't go to a doctor to get help. He didn't go to a Roman doctor. He didn't go to uh, any Jewish teacher. He didn't go to anyone other than Jesus. He goes to Jesus to ask for healing because he knows Jesus is the one who can heal his servant. Indeed, this man, the centurion, must have heard Jesus speaking. He must have been around. Quite frankly, he might have been part of a Roman garrison that would have been there, that would have been ready, that would have been kind of watching the crowds. Because keep in mind, the last thing Romans wanted was a riot. So then he might have been like a riot policeman, you know, I'm thinking about, so he's hearing what's going on, and he knows that Jesus can heal. And so he calls for Jesus to do this for his young servant. 
But what is wrong with his young servant? Well, the diagnosis is paralysis. Seems to be pretty obvious that he is unable to move and work, and it seems to be caused by severe pain. Again, we could guess what this is. Some people have guessed lots of different things about what this problem might be. I don't think it really matters. What we know is that he's in a lot of pain and he is unable to move and he's unable to work. He's unable to perform the duties that he's meant to perform. And so the centurion is asking for Jesus' help. We see the treatment that Jesus prescribes here is not his touch as it was before, but it ends up being his word, Jesus' word. And it's interesting how we get to that point because Jesus starts by saying, I will come and heal him. So Jesus says, yeah, I'll come. All right, take me to your house. And the centurion says, no, 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 I'm not worthy to have you in my house. Uh, But I know that you have authority. I'm just summing this up. I know that you have authority, just like I have authority. And I know if I say something, people do it. And I know if you say something, it'll happen. You see, the centurion understands something about Jesus' authority. And that is that it's not contained to just a touch. It's not contained to just... his physical presence right there, but his authority goes far and far beyond. And that is exactly what the centurion understands. Now, Jesus being willing to come to his home, first of all, was scandalous in and of itself. And that's probably partly why the centurion says that Jesus shouldn't come to his home, because, yes, the Jews and the Gentiles weren't supposed to do that, but also because Jesus, he understands, is more than just a mere man. And so the centurion doesn't want him to come to his house because of those reasons, But he does know that Jesus can heal with just a word, that his touch isn't necessary. He understands the authority that Jesus truly possesses. And at that point, after the centurion says this, we see that Jesus does something very interesting. He doesn't do this very often, but I love the fact that this says he marveled. He marveled at the centurion's faith. I don't think this means he was surprised by the centurion's faith, but I do think it was one of those moments where it was just like, you know, you just have one of those moments. You just know this is, this is exactly what was supposed to happen. This is a great opportunity for teaching. And he's marveling at this faith because he's like, this is what I'm here for. And this man has the faith that I have call, I'm calling people to. And as he marvels, then he pivots to be able to use this as a teaching opportunity to those who are around and watching. He uses the opportunity to teach this statement that people from all nations will be a part of the new kingdom and that many Jews will miss out and be thrown out of the kingdom. That's what Jesus says. He says, I'll tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And so he's pointing to this Gentile centurion, a Roman, and he says, many will come from the east and west and recline at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So again, he's going back to talking about the kingdom. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is coming. And if you want to be a part of that kingdom, it's going to come from the east and the west and all people from all nations. But then he says, while the sons of the kingdom, and this is a way of referring to the Jewish kingdom, the Jewish nation, and while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says something that had to be so offensive to everyone listening. Any Jew listening would be so offended by these words. What Jesus is saying is that, listen, like this man who has faith, who's not a Jewish person, but he's a Gentile. He's not only a Gentile, but he's a Roman. He's the type of person that's going to inherit the kingdom of God. Not the, and many Jews are going to miss out. Those who think that they've got it all figured out, that they're part of this earthly kingdom. The people that, are, that are put their hope in the earthly kingdom will not receive the heavenly kingdom. And yet Jesus is making it very obvious here that people from all over will be part of the kingdom of God. 
Again, he just got done teaching this very idea that it's about, who you, it's about the fact that you follow the king that makes you a part of the kingdom. It's not about where you're from or who you are, but it's about whose you are. Really, it's about belonging to the king. And so he's already taught on that, and now he's showing that to be true, even as the centurion comes to him. In Isaiah 56, 6 through 8, uh, it, has been, it was foretold uh, that salvation is for not only outcasts, but all the peoples. And I want to read this because it goes to both the outcasts that we just talked about and now the nations that we're talking about. Book of Isaiah, and by the way, you're going to want to keep your finger there. We will be in Isaiah in just a moment, but uh, another time. But Isaiah chapter 56, Isaiah 56. And I want to read verses 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, shall be his servants, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. In verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The prophecy told in Isaiah, and we know that Isaiah is prophesying the future salvation of all people, and it's very clear that the salvation that comes is going to come to the outcast, we read that, and also to all the peoples, to the nations. Not just for the Jewish clean person, but for the outcasts and for the nations, for the peoples, those who aren't part of the Jewish people. And so Jesus, again, is this is, we're seeing this happen. That prophecy, and, and it's not mentioned here, but it has to be in our minds, that prophecy is being seen here. We see that Jesus, again, is showing that the kingdom is more than just a Jewish earthly kingdom, that it's beyond all of that, that it's a heavenly kingdom that all people from all peoples are able to come into, and the outcasts are the ones that can come in. They are no longer outcasts any longer in the new kingdom. And that is what Jesus is even showing through this Roman slave who he heals but in the fact that the roman himself is a slave is a whole nother piece not a free man but a servant or a slave in some way shape or form no rights of his own in one sense and jesus heals him indeed we know the truth of the matter is what we read in galatians you can turn there if you wish or you can listen but galatians chapter 3 verses 28 through 29 also gives us this understanding of what god is planning and has planned and has done through Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What is the point of this passage? It's to remind us that the kingdom of heaven the people of God is not defined okay is not defined by nationality it's not defined by whether we're free or not it's not defined by our gender it is only defined by the fact that we are in Christ Jesus all those other things may divide us in this world but they are we unite in Jesus no matter what the difference we might have There is a truth here that we see that Jesus is showing here in Matthew chapter 8 that the kingdom is for all people of all backgrounds, anyone who will come to him in faith. Again, don't miss the piece of faith here. 
There's been faith in the leper. There's been faith in the centurion. They believe in Jesus, not only in who he is, but what he can do, and they trust him to do it. And they ask him, and he does. Which, we, which leads us to the outcome of this uh, patient who was per, uh, paralyzed, and that is the fact that he is healed. But not only just healed, there is healing from a distance. Healing from a distance. The faith of the centurion led Jesus to confirm he would do it, and it was done. He just said, let it be so, and it happened. This is the authority and power of our Lord, of our Savior, who can just speak, and it was healed. So now we've seen that he's healed with a touch, and he's healed with his word. Now we go on to the next patient, and that is a sickly woman. A sickly woman who is indeed also Peter's mother-in-law. This is, the idea of a sickly woman here in verse 15 is this is another outcast of Jewish society, a woman who was completely dependent upon her family. There was no independence here. She was dependent upon her family, in this case, most likely Peter and Andrew, and because they lived in her, she lived in their house. So we see she was an outcast of Jewish society, another person that most men of Jewish society would have nothing to do with. If she was sick, she was sick. We just let it take its course. But Jesus doesn't do that. We see the diagnosis is fever. She has a high fever. Again, we could, we could surmise. Some people think this is malaria. Other people have different ideas. Again, let's not get bogged down in wondering exactly what it is. What we know, it's a high fever. What we're told in other passages, it's a high fever. And it's led her to be bedridden. She is bedridden, unable to fend for herself, un, unable to do anything for herself from what it seems. We don't even see her talking here. We don't see her asking Jesus for this healing. We do see in other passages in the Gospels that Peter and Andrew asked Jesus to do this. And Jesus does. He's about to heal her. But we see that she is, has a high fever. It seems like all hope is lost. Again, that's why Jesus enters the scene. It's not just a, oh, I've got a 99-degree fever. This is a high fever that is causing most likely delirium. It's, ca- it's, 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 bed- it's caused her to be bedridden probably a symptom of a worse disease. It's probably not just all alone. There's probably something more going on here, but she's unable to do much, or if anything. The treatment that Jesus prescribes for her, so we see here in our passage that we're reading, and he, Jesus entered Peter's house, and he saw his mother-in-law sick, laying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Uh, we want to go over to a parallel passage in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4, where this same story is told, but it tells us something else. This is, not a, this is not a contradiction. This is something easy to put together. But Luke chapter 4, 38 and 39. Luke chapter 4, 38 and 39. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So what I want to say here is that the treatment that Jesus has for the, Peter's mother-in-law is Jesus' touch and his words. We see both playing in t- in this story, in this time that he heals this sickly woman that most men would have had nothing to do with, and yet he takes the time to reach out, and it says he takes her hand. So I, and, and then rebukes the fever. I think this is happening simultaneously. He's grabbing her hand to lift her up, and he's saying, Be gone, fever! 
And as he does that, she does rise. And again, we see the outcome is that there is instant and complete restoration. So the treatment is Jesus' touch and words. The outcome is instant and complete restoration. She gets up immediately, immediately, and begins to serve him. She starts doing what she has been longing to do, to serve, to do what she can do, to be thankful, and also just she's back on her feet doing stuff. That's the point we look at here. It's not about whether uh, how important it is that she's serving at this point. The point is, is that she's up and moving and doing stuff after being bedridden and sick with a fever. And Jesus is able to bring complete restoration, complete and instant restoration. Again, it's a miracle. Again, Jesus showing his authority, showing his power. He's been talking to people about his authority. He's been showing his authority even through how he teaches, but now he shows it in the way that he is healing people. And then we have a summary statement that's given to us uh, with our patient four, which is actually a group of patients, uh, and that is the oppressed many. The oppressed many, verses 16 and 17. It says simply, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So we see the diagnosis here of the many is that there was demon possession and undisclosed illnesses. Now, because of time and because this is not what we are really needing to talk about, I'm not going to talk too much about demon possession today, but we do see it in Scripture. It's something that in biblical times, especially, we see happening all the time, and Jesus shows his power and authority even over the spiritual realm. That's the point here, is that his authority is not just limited to the physical realm, but his authority extends beyond. It's beyond the physical. It goes to the, even the spiritual that we can't see. And Jesus casts out demons, we're told, and he heals illnesses. People with various problems that we that must be incurable because they're coming to him and needing his healing. And again, so then we do see the treatment. Jesus cast out demons and healed the sick. And then we see the outcome. The outcome is more than just people being healed. It says the outcome is that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is another one of those fulfillment texts that we find in Matthew. Remember, this is to point again to the fact that Jesus as the Messiah is fulfilling what the Messiah is meant to be. The servant of God is meant to be. He's the fulfillment of all of that. He's fulfillment fulfillment of the pattern that we've seen through Scripture. He's the fulfillment of the Messiah that would bring ultimate restoration. And the, the prophecy that's being drawn on in Matthew is from Isaiah 53. I told you we'd be back to Isaiah, so go back to Isaiah 53. I didn't even keep it myself, but Isaiah 53. Turn there because this is going to be an important passage. Isaiah 53, many of you know Isaiah 53 very well. We are going to be spending time in verses 4 and 5. Isaiah 53 is a common prophecy that we know is talking about the Messiah, the one who is coming to set things right, the, the one who would be the servant that would fulfill Israel, Israel's role of bringing salvation to the world. Isaiah 53, uh, verses uh, 4, where I say we were at? Sorry, 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5, this is what Matthew is alluding to when he says, this has been fulfilled in Jesus. Now notice the words are a little different here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's where Matthew gets the idea that illnesses and sicknesses are taken care of by Jesus. Uh, the way he says it back in Matthew is he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This says he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. For he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So, Isaiah 53 is brought up here. Matthew's fulfillment is seen in the healing of people. So, he's saying this healing that Jesus is doing is fulfilling this passage. But what we just read in this passage isn't about somebody coming to heal people of disease. It's about someone coming to heal people, yes. But it says, by his wounds we are healed, but what are we healed from? He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. So what we're healed from is transition, or transgressions, iniquities, from sin. But then why is Matthew using this to say he, bore, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases? What, is he just missing the point? Does he not understand what's going on? I don't think that's the case. I think this is very simple. Matthew is saying that what is happening right here points to a bigger reality. What is happening right here is not just about physical healing. What is happening here is something bigger and greater and deeper that we need to understand about who Jesus is and why he is here. And that is that by showing that he can defeat even illnesses and diseases in a physical sense, that he's going to do an even greater healing that is coming as he heals people from their sin. We've already seen people having faith in him to receive forgiveness, and we will continue to do that. That's how we end up coming to Jesus to ask for his forgiveness and his healing from sin. Because we have sinned and we are diseased spiritually. And that disease has killed us, and we need his healing, not only to take the disease away, but also we need him to give us actual life. And that's what's promised in Isaiah 53. It says that this is what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. His authority to heal, this is what we can't miss, his authority to heal points to his authority to forgive. And if you think that's a crazy thought, and I'm going to jump ahead and probably steal a little bit about what Justin will be preaching when we get to Matthew 9. But Matthew chapter 9, just a few chapters, or just a chapter after this, the first section, I want to read this passage, and many of you know this. Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. And the crowd saw it. They were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Like I said, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I can't read chapter 8 without thinking about what's going to happen in chapter 9. This is the starting point. Jesus is saying, listen, healing is great. Yes, physical healing. But then even Matthew is pointing it out here at the end of or towards 8.17. It'll be seen in 9 that the whole point of Jesus' physical healing is to show a greater reality. And that greater reality that he is showing is the healing and the forgiveness of sin. And that's what we can experience through Jesus. We are not promised, this is the important piece, we are not promised that this life will not bring sickness or illness. Some people have used this verse to say, well, if you just live for Jesus, you'll never get sick. Obviously, we know from experience that's not true, but that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible never says, actually, the Bible says we will have all sorts of trouble in this world. 
And so we need to expect that, yes, illness and sickness, because, by, remember, where does illness and sickness come from? It comes as a result of sin. Not in personal sin, but it's a result of sin entering the world. Therefore, suffering and sickness and death and pain, all of that came into the world because of sin. And Jesus is going to be now conquering the symptoms of sin to show us that he's not only going to end by healing the symptoms of sin, but he is going to heal sin itself. Through faith, through those who have faith in Jesus, we will be healed of sin, which is so much more important, so much more lasting. Being healed of our physical problems in this world means nothing, because that's not about eternal life. That's just about the life we live here. But, he, but we look to a greater healing that is coming through Jesus, that if we have faith in him and we trust in the miracle-working Jesus who told us what it's like to live in the new kingdom, that we trust him and we ask him for forgiveness, and if he can heal, then he can heal anything and he can forgive our sin. So let's not think that as Christians that we are promised that he will always get rid of our illnesses and get rid of our diseases. Even if he doesn't, I mean, he could, he might. I'm not saying he never will. But I'm saying let's not put our hope and our trust in that. We put our hope and our trust in the fact that he's healed us from such a disease much worse than any disease we can ever experience on this earth. A disease worse than COVID, a disease worse than cancer, a disease worse than any disease that we could ever experience is the disease of sin. And Jesus is saying, he's showing, he's saying, he's showing, and Matthew is pointing out that the Messiah has come and he is not just going to heal physically, but even greater, he's going to heal spiritually. And we trust in that. And not only is it saying what Jesus can do and what he's done now, but it's pointing us to the final consummation of the kingdom. The consummation of the kingdom of God, when the kingdom is not just uh, in, the kingdom has started. The kingdom is here, but now it's consummated, it's physically here. It's been in, in Revelation chapter 21, what do we read? We know these verses, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Not only do we see that Jesus provides healing physically and spiritually, but we see at the end when the kingdom is consummated, we see that all illnesses, diseases, pain, suffering, all of it is gone for those who believe in Jesus and are with him in the kingdom. That's the truth that we can hold to. So yes, we can read Matthew 8 and we can just look at him as a bunch of stories of people being healed. And we can either think, well, that, whatever, that's kind of cool that he can do that. Some of us might think, well, man, I wish I could get healed from what's bothering me. Some of us might think, well, he did that then, but I don't know if he can do that now. Some people might just read it as just words on a page but there's so much more going on here jesus's authority is being seen and shown do you trust in his authority in conclusion just three questions to ask first of all have you experienced the true healing of the king are you sitting here today and you still have the disease of sin that is polluting you from the inside out and you have not been forgiven of that sin you have not 
given, been given freedom from that sin. Not that you're perfect, but you're looking at your life and, or you're thinking about your relationship with God and it doesn't exist and you look and you don't know if you know the king and you haven't experienced healing. Well, the rest of the New Testament continues the story of how Jesus is going to heal sin, how he can forgive sin. And that is that he would one day, as he goes through, he teaches what it looks like to live in the kingdom and then he dies on the cross to take the penalty for our sin that we deserved. Going back to Isaiah 53, he took the punishment. He took all of that for our sin, for our transgression. He did that as he died on the cross. Then he rose again to show, listen, look at this. My death mattered. It counted. God accepted my death, and now I'm alive because sin and death are defeated. That one day all suffering will be gone if we trust in him. If we turn away from living for ourselves, if we turn away from our unbelief and we believe in him and we turn towards Jesus, we trust in Jesus and we look to him for our lives now knowing that one day he is going to bring complete healing no matter what happens in this life and we trust him through that. We trust Jesus even in the hardest times. That is what he is looking for and what he wants is part of his kingdom. And if you haven't experienced that healing, that true healing that everybody needs, then all you need to do is come to him in faith. Lord, I know you can, will you? And the beautiful thing that we know is that Jesus has already said, if you come to me, I will. I will save you. Not only can he, he will. For all of us here, do you trust in God's authority over suffering? Maybe you're suffering today. Maybe it's, it seems like all, that you just need healing. And that's the only thing that can give you hope. Know that even in the worst times, even in the hardest times, even in the most painful times, there is a better time coming. To know that, in, that one day all of that will be gone, but even now, even as you suffer, and I know as hard as it is to feel this way, we need to know what God's word says, and that is that Jesus has given you the healing that you need, even if you're not getting the healing that you want. He's giving you the healing of the disease of sin, and praise him for that, and thank him for that daily and yes, we pray and we hope for those who are suffering that that suffering will be relieved in this life, but even if it not, it will be in the next, and trust him for that. And finally, do you remind yourself of the ultimate healing that is to come? Again, no matter what's going on in our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, remember what is coming. Remember Jesus is coming, and that all of this will be gone. He is the healer. He is the healer physically. He is the healer spiritually. And he will heal ultimately all things. And that's what we can trust in him. So I know we're a little later than normal, but I'd still like to sing a song because I think we need to finish with it. So if our worship team could creep on up here. And just as we sing again, let's remember Jesus, the healer. But more than that, Jesus, the Savior. Let's stand and sing.